So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code PREPARED20. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. It didn't start with Australia. We've seen it with Korea. We've seen it with Japan on rare earths. We've seen it with Philippines on bananas. But the Australia moves are just, they seem to be escalating. No end seems to be in sight. And frankly, you know, I don't think it's going to end with Australia if there is not an international response, because what does China conclude then? Basically, they have the market power to do this and it's cost free. So the message to other countries is don't criticize us because we'll hit your products next. Wendy Cutler spent 28 years in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, leaving government service in 2015 after working on the likes of Chorus, the TPP, and a number of bilateral agreements with Japan. Wendy is currently the Vice President of the Asia Society. Welcome to China Talk. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Maybe let's start off with your reflections on how you would compare Chinese trade negotiators to other counterparts you've interacted with around the world. When I think of my negotiating days with the Chinese, a couple of things stand out. I think the Chinese negotiators tended to be less conversational and more into what I would call lecturing us. They tended to be more formal and their interventions tended to be longer. And as a result, it was less conversational, less back and forth. And I think in a negotiation, that's something that I think makes negotiations more difficult. Also, I always had the view that it was a very kind of top-down type of negotiation. So the people I was negotiating with from China were on a very short leash, that they didn't have the kind of flexibilities to explore compromises that perhaps counterparts from other countries had. So what do you gain and lose from taking this approach to trade negotiations? I think it, I think it makes it more difficult to reach a deal, frankly, because you want to establish a trustworthy relationship with your counterpart. You want to be able to explore different landing zones. And if it's more formal, that becomes more challenging. And also, if they don't have flexibility, um, then that means that every time you talk to them, you need to take a break or you need to wait a month and then they'll get back to you. So it could it drags out negotiations in terms of, of length. But it could also mean just harder to reach um, mutually acceptable outcomes. Let's take it back to the Obama era trade policy. So the Jake Sullivan slash Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign critique of Obama era, but really just sort of Democratic centrist trade policy in the past I don't know, 20 years, but but particularly during the campaign, it focused on the TPP, was that U.S. trade policy wasn't as laser focused as it should have been in helping the middle class. And that was a big reason why Trump was able to turn this more moderate critique up to 11 and turn it into an actual successful campaign issue. So I guess my question for you is, to what extent do you sort of buy this logic? There's definitely some validity to this. And frankly, as an official in the Obama administration, we were recognizing that over time that the input we were getting from stakeholders all around the country was suggesting 
kind of a trepidation, anxieties, wanting to do more, for example, in the labor side, wanting to do more to promote the ability of the U.S. to restrict imports if needed. And we were responsive to those concerns, but I think we were not sufficiently responsive, and that kind of played out with how the TPP was addressed during the 2016 presidential campaign. So I think Trump was able to really tap into that economic anxiety. Where I differ, though, is that while I think trade agreements do play a role in all of this, I think sometimes people's expectations of trade agreements are just too high, that they think that they're designed to address issues like income inequality. And while I think they play a role in that debate, I think that domestic measures, effective domestic measures, need to go hand in hand with trade agreements. And so what I would argue is the traditional trade adjustment assistance program, which was always kind of tacked on to congressional legislation, was not adequate, right? It didn't work. Enough workers and communities were not soliciting that assistance. It didn't go far enough. And so I would hope during the Biden administration, we're already seeing signs, but there's going to be a real focus on building U.S. competitiveness, which also includes education and worker training. I mean, those those types of issues need to go hand in hand with trade agreements and trade agreements alone can't solve those problems. Yeah. My big takeaway, especially through 2020, is like you look at the China shock paper and the impacts that that had compared to like one week of COVID are just you know, it's 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 apple and oranges, the level to which other domestic policies can I mean, the, the size of other domestic shots, as opposed to these trade deals will have on the, you know, American worker more broadly. And, that, and, and you know, the other just big phenomenon that was happening at the same time as we were opening up markets more and more, including to China, was frankly advances in technology, which have huge impacts on jobs and productivity. Coming to China then, in broader U.S. foreign policy circles and to a more and more extent in the public at large, there's been a rethinking of how the U.S. should approach its relationship with China, which, as I see it, derives from America concluding that China is not trending towards that Robert Zwellick responsible stakeholder and the terms of engagement on which it wants to base relationships with other countries isn't really acceptable to the U.S. So maybe first off, to what extent do you buy into this larger shift about how the U.S. blob views China? Yeah. So when I think of U.S.-China relations, for me, it's easy to go back to 2001 when China joined the World Trade Organization. And I think there were two expectations that were in place at that time that were frankly never met. The first was that China was on an inevitable trajectory of reform and that China was reforming, China was opening, and that the WTO was just going to accelerate this trend. And that did not materialize. I disagree, however, that it was a mistake to let China into the WTO. Um, China made a lot of reform, a lot, and undertook a lot of market opening at that time, and their top leadership was committed um, to reform and market opening. The second expectation was that there would be future negotiations, market opening negotiations in the WTO. So China would continue to make concessions in future negotiating rounds. But what happened simultaneously with Chinese accession to the WTO is that the WTO 
membership expanded and it became more and more difficult for countries to reach new trade agreements and to agree to cut their tariffs further. So we kind of, and you know, we're, we're in a world now where the rules with China in the WTO, for the most part, have stayed put at the ones, at the rules that were agreed to when they exceeded. And that wasn't supposed to happen. And so as a result, you know, we have a situation where China's, a lot of its practices are not adequately dealt with by current WTO rules. And we've also seen not only the trajectory not moving to reform in market opening, but I would argue it's going in the opposite direction. We're seeing more and more state involvement in their economy. Yeah, we're seeing some market opening, and for example, in the financial services sector, but many other sectors, we're seeing increasing barriers, both formal and informal, which are presenting huge challenges, not only for U.S. companies, but for other companies of countries from all around the world. Yeah, and it's all, of course, it's not just the trajectory of economic policy, right? Maybe Bloomberg can sell more uh, terminals in China now, thanks to new policies. But just yesterday, one of the research assistants in Bloomberg, China disappeared. So there's both aspects of this to contend with, for sure. Right. I mean, the markets are closing and the society is closing at the same time. So this sort of coming back to 2001 and this sort of like dream of another Zhurongji, for a little context, this was a premier of China who was committed to reform and sort of saw the WTO negotiation as a way to pry open SOEs and do major liberalization. And what I found fascinating in the reporting of Trump era trade policy was the fact that Robert Lighthizer got convinced that that person existed. So I guess my question is like, if that strain is, is more or less dead or just sort of a facade in 2020 that Chinese trade negotiators put up to the U S to convince us that, you know, things will turn around at some point. Like if that person is not going to be there while she is in power, what else should we start questioning when it comes to our approach to China trade? Yeah, you know, through the years, many different approaches have been tried to China trade, including the latest approach of tariffs. But let's recall during the Bush administration, they initiated a lot of these big dialogues with China aimed to kind of let's all get in the room, all the different agencies from both governments and try and work through these issues. And if we can solve some of the macroeconomic issues that by definition, they will help trade. During the Obama administration, particularly in the first term, there was a lot of emphasis placed on filing suits in the World Trade Organization against China. And, and in fact, the U.S. scored many victories with respect to the cases it brought against China in the WTO. And then, you know, and, and I think that, that paved, paved the way for the, the tariff and the unilateral approach. But I think what we've seen now, we have a phase one deal, which I would argue, while it has some meaningful provisions, it falls way short of the expectations this administration set in the beginning for its trade relationship with China. And at the same time, we have tariffs in place on $370 billion worth of Chinese imports that China's not paying, U.S. companies and U.S. workers are paying, U.S. consumers are paying those tariffs. So I don't think that approach is right either. And I think what this all suggests is that there's no kind of silver bullet here. 
But one thing I think we could be doing a better job, and this is something that the Biden team is putting a lot of emphasis on, will be working with allies and partners. Because I think after kind of this go-it-alone policy over the past four years, what it suggests is that's not working. If we can bring the force of many other countries that share our concerns, then perhaps together we can all convince China that the status quo is unacceptable. Back this summer, I asked for your donations after calculating that the revenue per hour I make making China talk was about $5 an hour. Thanks to your commitments, there was a little bump, but I basically poured that money into hiring an editor to help me clean up these episodes and then use the time saves to pump out close to two shows a week in recent months. If you learned something this year listening to China Talk and you think this show is worth at least a dollar an episode to you, please consider becoming a supporter of China Talk at glow.fm slash China Talk. Perks include an exclusive YouTube playlist featuring all the songs that have appeared on the show. And if you commit $150 before 2021, I'll be sure to get you a China Talk mug. Wendy, what would the world look like if the WTO just completely died? If Meaning if they stopped caring and they didn't view it um, as, as it, or they didn't take the rules seriously, yeah. then basically, in my view, you, you have the Wild West in the world with respect to trade policy. No certainty, no no rules. A country could change their rules tomorrow. They could impose 100% tariffs on your goods. They could tell you your services couldn't come in. And so basically, it would be a very unpredictable and chaotic world. And so what you want are some basic rules. And frankly, the WTO is successful at that. There are basic rules of non-discrimination. Countries lock in where their tariffs will be. They agree to rules like most favored nation and national treatment, transparency, and I think all of those rules are important and should stay in place. But I would hope that those rules could be updated and expanded to address the realities of trade today. Because the, the problem is, if they're not updated, then increasingly, I think you use the word irrelevant, the WTO becomes increasingly irrelevant and you know, will no longer be a place where countries go to Geneva to, to solve disputes. They solve disputes between them. And frankly, big countries win when there are disputes just by their market power, for the most part. So is that not what's already happening with respect to China and other countries around the world? Well, increasingly, we are seeing that countries are taking matters into their own hands. And and frankly, the United States, in many ways, has led that charge under the Trump administration. It's ignored, for example, the rules on raising tariffs against China, but in other areas, and it has just gone ahead and, and done so. And that has created costs in the world. And we've seen other countries, frankly, you know, they don't just take these tariffs. What do they do? They respond with their own tariffs. That's what China did. That's what Europe did. And, you know, that's what other trading partners are doing as well. So it's not cost free. It's not like we can just do what we want. If, if that's the route we choose in trade policy, kind of a Wild West policy, then other countries are going to imitate and mirror what we're doing as well to protect their own national interests. So, Coming back to your idea of like, we've tried these three different approaches to China and none of them have really worked in terms of, you know, market access or, or state subsidies. Is there a theory of change or should the U.S. just kind of accept this and go down the road that it seems like some senators are excited about, which is doing our own sort of 
you know, version of industrial policy with the CHIPS Act and what have you? There's not one policy that works. I think in order to deal with the China challenge, we need to be pursuing a whole slew of policies simultaneously and put weights on kind of different parts of that approach. So in any approach going forward, I think we need to be putting more weight on the approach of working with allies and partners. And frankly, you know, given China's recent trade actions against Australia for non-trade concerns, you know, I think that's that's showing other countries they may be next in line. So I think in many ways that's going to increase the willingness of other countries to work with the United States in a Biden administration. But I also think there are going to be areas where we're going to need to pursue either bilateral negotiations, take unilateral actions, block Chinese investment, impose export controls, hopefully coordinated with allies and partners. And also, you know, with respect to really essential and strategic industries to consider, I'm not going to call it industrial policy, but to consider domestic measures to support these industries in a more meaningful and robust way. So coming back again to the role of the WTO, you write that the Trump administration identified that the current system posed by non-market economies, particularly China, fell short of delivering meaningful results. The Biden administration has underscored the importance of working with partners and with international institutions to address these problems. As a first step, the incoming administration should finalize the trilateral work with the EU and Japan on industrial subsidies, recruit wider national support, and, support, and submit a proposal to the UN for negotiation. I just have a hard time conceptualizing, Wendy, like what China could accept on these issues in the WTO context, which would move the ball forward? Like, how does more pressure at the WTO level get at this uh, state subsidy issue? Well, I think the hope is if that there's a, a, a growing group of WTO members that want to update these rules and China's listening to all these other countries explain why these rules need to be updated, that it will feel the pressure to engage in a negotiation. I'm not naive. I don't think this is going to be easy, but I think it's it's an approach and a measure and, and a step we should try because to date we haven't put anything concrete on the table. So what China can say is, oh, this is an interesting discussion, you know, see you around. But if we actually put a proposal on a table, on the table, and WTO members start discussing it, I think China's under pressure. It can choose, of course, as any WTO member can, not to participate. But then I think countries, other countries will get, including the U.S., will get increasingly frustrated and try and kind of figure out, well, what then what's the next step? We're trying the rulemaking approach with China. If they don't want to participate in that and these rules don't address their practices, then maybe it's not just the U.S. taking unilateral measures, but it's a whole group of countries coordinating measures they can take against China, again, trying to put more pressure on them to partake in negotiations on issues like, like industrial subsidies. Great. So, Wendy, let's fast forward to 2022. Your former colleagues write out a wonderful proposal and China sort of shakes, it, shakes its head. Do we see a new body? What, like, how do you see that pressure most effectively playing out in the multilateral context? So, you know, look, there are various ways it could play out. It could just be an ad hoc coalition of countries working together. It could be a group of countries, let's just say, working 
in the context of another international organization like the OECD. It could be a TPP-like approach where you work with other countries in a binding trade agreement to write rules and bring you know, other countries on board. And basically, at some point, China is isolated. Again, you know, we'll have to see how something like this would play out, but I think the status quo is unacceptable. And what's so disappointing for me with the phase one trade agreement, that if you read what the administration was trying to achieve in these negotiations, and you think of all the firepower they put yeah. into this negotiation, at the end of the day, they didn't have the staying power to really address the tough issues that needed to be addressed. They chose to pocket what they'd achieved already. They talked about a phase two deal. And, you know, 10 months later, they never launched that negotiation. The Chinese kind of tired them out. There was negotiating fatigue. I've experienced it, but I also know that if you put everything off until the next day, you know, that day may never come. Yeah. I mean, this is really where my pessimism about all of this comes from, because China had never seen as much pressure as it did pre-phase one deal. And if even those sort of enormous U.S. tariffs, which clearly had some impact on the broader macroeconomic situation, weren't enough to get the uh, Chinese government willing to put more on the table. And, you know, they, they're still living with a lot of tariffs right now, right? So it's not like they've completely gotten gotten out of the out of the woods on this one. But if that didn't get any movement on the state subsidy stuff and the market access stuff, it's, it leaves me very pessimistic that any sort of like softer, like, hey, let's, you know, we'll welcome you back into the tent as long as you sign some new rules type approach is going to have much success. Yeah. But again, it was unilateral. And so I think we need to give another shot at kind of a multilateral approach and again, if if our other trading partners are also kind of feeling the same thing, and if it wasn't just the U.S. restricting access to its market, but other countries as well, you know, I think we should give that approach a shot. Great. So let's take that idea and put it into the context of what we've seen in Australia and China over the past few weeks. I'm not going to do the recap, but for more context, do go back and listen to my episode with Yoon Jong. But suffice, but suffice to say that because of Australia's foreign policy moves around COVID-19, Xinjiang and Hong Kong, China has come down like a ton of bricks on a number of key Australian exports like barley and wine, which is likely to cause serious pain to Australian producers. So I have three harebrained screams for you. The first comes from Matt Klein, economics writer at Forbes. If Chinese consumers won't buy Australian wine, the U.S. federal government would. There are several ways to do this. The most straightforward approach would be for Congress to appropriate money to buy Australian and other allied products financed by issuing bonds. Alternatively, if budget scoring were a concern, the government could create a special purpose vehicle to buy and hold Australian wine and other commodities in storage, financed by borrowing from the Federal Reserve. A strategic Shiraz reserve, the U.S. government could hold on to its stockpile of non-perishable goods until the Chinese government relented, at which point the U.S. could gradually sell whatever it had accumulated onto world markets, either at a profit or at a small loss. Regardless of the specifics, the U.S. has effectively limitless resources to protect its allies and its own industries from Chinese economic coercion. It's time to use that power to protect our fellow democracies. I think that might be going too far and be too ambitious. I think at a first, as a first step, the United States and other countries in Geneva at upcoming meetings, there's a meeting of the General Council next week, 
countries should put China on the spot. At the senior levels, China's talking about how they are the proponents of free trade. They are anti-unilateralism. They believe in the rules-based system. Well, these measures that they've taken against Australia, in my view, clearly violate the letter and the spirit of the WTO. And I think it's really important for countries as a first step to show solidarity at the WTO by calling China out on this. And that can be complemented, for example, if Australia decides to sue China in the World Trade Organization for these restrictions. I think the U.S. and other countries should join that dispute. I think those are kind of realistic, tangible steps. And I think, frankly, they'd be really embarrassing for China on the world stage when, you know, its leader is talking about how it is the proponent of free trade. And frankly, I wonder if there aren't certain people in China's trade ministry that would welcome such calling out and even disputes because, you know, it's really hard to defend these practices and they are so inconsistent with what's being said at senior levels. I know, but But, Wendy, it feels like the fact of the matter is, you know, we were talking about this at the beginning of the show, right? The trade negotiators don't have the power. And I think Xi Jinping is very happy looking, doesn't really have much of a problem looking hypocritical to the broader global community, right? So, well, I, I, I don't know if I, if I agree with that, but yeah, okay. I don't know if I agree with, with that second point. I think if, if the United States and other countries really were publicly expressing concerns with these policies, I think they're very hard to defend. But I guess if, if I'm sitting in Australia right now, it feels like the U.S., if all they're going to do is sort of send some statements, it feels like we're sort of leaving them out um out in okay. the cold. Well, no, again, or... I said, I said as a step. Okay. Okay. And then I think joining them in dispute settlement is more than just making statements. But I also think we need to, you know, again, work with Australia and other countries and figure out additional steps to take. I'm not sure if like agreeing to buy the stuff that China's not buying, you know, is the right solution. And it may, frankly, propose domestic challenges for us in terms of U.S. <laughs> industry saying, well, why are you using our taxpayers' dollars to buy, you know, to buy products from other countries? Why don't you buy our products? But I think there are further steps that, that if countries got together, they could consider taking. And I think it's really important for the international community to put their foot down on this and to know, and to, to kind of put China in notice. It's not business as usual if, if this is the way you're going to be. Yeah, I mean, it does get hard because like, who gains from these tariffs on Australia, you know, American wine producers, right? Who gain market share. So getting like the not having like the national security argument, Trump, the kind of gain that the domestic, that domestic economic interests would have for this sort of thing, I think is, you know, tricky to tricky to pull off for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if our wine exports are going to be increasing there, but even again, even domestically, the notion that our government would be like buying up products from another country that's facing restrictions from China. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but I think we'd really need to think through that and think through the domestic fallout from something like that. There are probably other steps that can be taken with more teeth that, you know, could be thought, could be brainstormed for example, how about if the United States just convened with Australia a meeting of other middle-sized countries in Asia, Europe, and elsewhere 
to discuss this issue and and come up with concrete list of steps they could take. But I mean, we're here on the show. Here's our this is our time for the concrete steps, right? So let let me throw another one at you. We have the idea of a mutual trade defense pact, sort of like modeled on Article Five, collective self defense, where you have some sort of automatic snapback when China does something like this, which doesn't necessarily have to wait, you know, two, three years for the WTO process to, to play itself out. What's, what, what am I missing when I, when, I dream this up, when I dream this up last night? Well, I think, I think what the U.S. and other like-minded countries could, you know, should do is look at steps they can take against China together, yeah. which, you know, China exports a lot to the world, okay? And you look at their November export statistics, they were off the charts, and so if countries could coordinate and say, if China does, you know, X, Y, and Z, we are going to coordinate our policies, work together to kind of take reciprocal actions against Chinese imports. Sure. So this one, this one, you're a little more, you're not willing to throw out quite as, quite as quickly. Well, again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not throwing out any of that. I, you know, I haven't given like a whole yeah, I would need to give thought to all of these in more detail. But, but uh, you know, this notion of an article like a, a NATO uh, against China on trade is, I mean, maybe that goes a little too far. But, but, the, but, but the idea of coordinating responses for unacceptable behavior, you know, in my mind should be on, at the top of the list for any type of international discussions on this topic. Because it's not going to stop with Australia. It didn't start with Australia. We've seen it with Korea. We've seen it with Japan on rare earths. We've seen it with Philippines on bananas. But the Australia moves are just, they seem to be escalating. No end seems to be in sight. And frankly, you know, I don't think it's going to end with Australia if there is not an international response. Because what does China conclude then? Basically, they have the market power to do this, and it's cost-free. So the message to other countries is, you know, don't criticize us because we'll hit your products next. And I think on that, we're in complete agreement. Thinking about the toolkit that the executive branch has to address these sorts of issues, do you think Section 232 and 301 are enough or should Congress consider adding something to, to, to USTR's bag of tricks if this is the sort of game that we end up playing um, in the next few, you know, for the foreseeable future. I'm a proponent of a really detailed review of our existing group of trade laws and to test whether they are adequate. Like one area where I think they are inadequate is the whole area of overcapacity. And that is where China is pouring huge amounts of money into subsidizing and providing financial assistance to certain industries. And it's just a matter of time before the products of the companies that receive these subsidies are going to be exporting them in huge volumes and creating huge international trade distortions. And the way our trade laws are written, by the time you can respond you know, to these types of practices, it's often too late. So this is a concrete example of kind of a practice where I think our trade laws should be updated to allow responses at an earlier time and to have kind of a less burden on the petitioner, for example, to have to show concrete harm or concrete injury. In other words, 
if you look at industries like the solar industry and, may, and frankly now the semiconductor industry, it's quite apparent that there's no way China's building up these industries just for its own domestic consumption. It, it, it wants to kind of lead in these sectors and sell these products overseas over time. And so I think we need to be able to act quicker, smarter, and earlier. But I think overall, we need to look at our trade laws and to see if they work, if they're agile enough, if they really get at the, the right problems, and if we need to have any either adjustments or additions. I think that would be you know, a, a good step for the next administration to take. So to what extent does adding to this toolkit and speeding up the kind of like retaliation that the U.S. can do undermine the WTO system? Or are you sort of not worried about that because this cat is out of the bag? Well, what my concern is if we wait for the WTO to update the rules, then we may be waiting forever. Yeah. If we were on the verge of updating our rules and we go to Geneva and we say, this is what we plan to do, we want to work with you to see if we can also do this in the context of an international negotiation. I think that, you know, that gives a, a, a better shot for success in Geneva. But, you know, frankly, someone who's, who's been a proponent of WTO rules for almost my whole career, I'm at the point as well where if the WTO can't update their rules <laughs> and strengthen them, then I think the U.S. and other countries may be left with no choice but to pursue, you know, certain certain measures. Biden just nominated, uh, just announced he was going to nominate Catherine Tai as his USTR. I'm curious if you have, you know, you were her former colleague. I'm curious if you have any sort of like anecdotes as well as, you know, prognostications on how her worldview will impact the way the USTR does its thing. Well, Catherine's an excellent choice um, for this job. I think she brings a number of strengths, the first being she knows trade. And it's not like she just knows China trade, which she knows inside and out as as the top China trade council at USTR, but she knows the WTO well. She knows our trade laws well. And so, you know, there's not going to be, she she can hit the ground running because she knows this stuff. Second, she's familiar with USTR as an agency, what it can do, what it can't do. She understands the interagency process and how to work with stakeholders and get stuff done. And third, she has proven herself and her ability to kind of problem solve and and solve issues that look intractable, such as the USMCA negotiations, when she kind of spearheaded efforts on behalf of the Democrats to improve and strengthen the agreement that the that the the Trump administration brought to the House Dems after her work and even working within the Democratic Party on trade issues, she you know the vote that that supported USMCA was unprecedented in terms of the numbers of, of members su- supporting the deal, but also the fact there was u- there was strong bipartisan support. So, frankly, I think, once again, an excellent pick. And, frankly, she's just a really nice person as well. And I think there's something always to be said, in my mind, for decent people getting to the top. That's great. Any other final reflections? I would just say I I couldn't agree with you more where a lot of your questions are headed, that China brings a lot of challenges to the international trading system. And it's unclear how we're going to deal with them particularly as China becomes more and more immune to international pressure. And frankly, as its market power 
you know, continues to grow. But all that said, we can't give up. And the answer shouldn't be, you know, we should all just be taking reciprocal actions. I think we need to keep trying to improve the rules. But in, again, in order to do that, I don't think we can do that alone. I think the past four years has shown that. So let's give a shot to working with our allies and partners more closely, working within the WTO, but again, being ready to take unilateral measures or ready to negotiate certain things bilaterally if needed as well. Let's just shift the weight in the types of approaches we're taking towards China. Wendy Cutler, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Well, thank you. But things will be cheaper, the great speakers say, without McKinley protection. The tariff is a tax and we'll sweep it away without McKinley protection. Just look, said the speaker, at this derby hat. You'll pay but a dollar for beauty like that. But Begora, we ain't got the dollar set pat without McKinley protection. Tramp, 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 hear the elephants going to Washington. Tramp, 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 hear the donkey is moving away. We've had quite enough of this Democrat rule. We'll send them right back to their 30 years school. And when they get out, Uncle Sam is a fool. For we want McKinley protection. Our great manufactories are all standing still without McKinley protection. That's why all the gold is locked up in the till without McKinley protection. Just shut up our markets to the foreigners' mill and give us the laborers a chance at the till. And we'll bring back prosperity over the hill when we get McKinley protection. 